Thank you for downloading this audio edition of a complete chapter from the volume entitled On Common Ground, International Perspectives on the Community Land Trust. I'm John Emmius Davis, one of the book's editors, along with my colleagues Lena Algood and Maria Hernandez-Torales. On Common Ground was published in June 2020 by Terra Nostra Press, a division of the Center for CLT Innovation. We hope that you enjoy the following program. Chapter 8. Messy is Good. The Origins and Evolution of the CLT Movement in England. Written and read by Stephen Hill, Catherine Harrington and Tom Archer. I'm Stephen Hill. I will read first, followed by Catherine and then by Tom, and I will return at the end to read the conclusion. Housing is a messy subject. This was the insight of Professor Sir Michael Attiar, former president of the Royal Society and arguably the United Kingdom's greatest mathematician since Isaac Newton. He made this remark in his opening speech to an international symposium of scientists in 1998, convened to propose a global strategy for housing in the third millennium. Hosted by the Royal Society, the symposium was intended to have a strong scientific and technological bias, but Sa'atia focused on morality and human rights. He said, Housing is not scientific, it's not hard, its themes are living, love, family, sociability and self-expression, none of which is easily quantified or measured. Sunshine may be more important than solar energy, and community and comfort are more important than strength and durability. Another speaker, John Eberhard, Professor of Architecture and Planning at Carnegie Mellon University, moved swiftly from talking about design codes and concrete testing procedures to call for a new paradigm of housing research based on housing rights. He was scornful of what he called the continuing power of preferred positions and the negligible contributions made by governments and construction industries to housing the homeless and people on modest incomes in both the developed and developing world. He said, the housing industry in Western society prefers the status quo and will not support government research programmes that might upset the delicate balance of the housing markets. I present here a case for making changes in the national housing priorities of Western societies, and I argue that housing issues are interwoven with the issues of community infrastructure. The barriers to effective technological solutions or design changes in housing are primarily questions of political will. Barriers. Industry preferring the status quo. Political will, or the absence of it. These will sound like familiar challenges to anyone working to meet the housing needs of their own community. That includes community land trusts, since producing and preserving affordable housing has been the main focus of England's CLT movement. This chapter will focus on how CLT activists in England have met the messy challenges of housing and steadily rebuilt 
the infrastructure in their communities, despite everything that seemed to get in the way. This is also a story of how CLTs have reshaped political will and national policy in a country where policymaking for both housing and community development has been highly centralised, as if there were one English housing market rather than hundreds of smaller markets. CLTs and their allies among other forms of community-led housing have helped to redesign and to redirect national policy so that local priorities, autonomy and diversity are valued and supportive, objectives that have now been substantially achieved. The chapter covers three periods, mapping the trajectory of CLT development in England, period one, from 1986 to 2008, origins of CLT thinking and practice, period two, 2008 to 2018, a decade of growth and consolidation, and period three, from the present to beyond, potential futures for CLTs. This chapter will celebrate the importance of messiness in the development of new ways of doing things in a field of activity that has historically been resistant to change and dominated by many vested political and financial interests. English CLTs are concerned both with the specific provision of genuinely and permanently affordable housing and with what some CLTs have called local governance. The power of self-determination on issues that are of critical importance to the well-being of a community. Over three decades, Messiness has helped to build a resilient and adaptive CLT movement, one that is now capable of generating enough possible and appropriate futures to keep that movement in good shape. Period 1. The Origins of CLT Thinking and Practice, 1986 to 2008. There are four strands in this section. Strand one is reimagining the equity structure of housing and land in villages, towns and cities. The need for new locally based institutions to promote financial inclusion and to hold land for the common good emerged during an extended period of political change created by financial crises and the distortion of local housing markets by the deregulation of global capital. Strand two is improving the quality of life in rural Cornwall. New ways of providing permanently affordable housing through CLTs arose in places where no other organisation could or would provide it. Strand three is new institutions for devolved local governance, which emerged in government programmes, public housing estate regeneration, land assembly in the public interest and urban renewal and growth area settings. And strand four is the statutory definition for CLTs in England and Wales, which was enacted in 2008, emphasising the community in community land trusts. Strand one, reimagining the equity structure of housing and land in villages, towns and cities. The 1980s were a period of significant change in patterns of property ownership, financial services and corporate ownership. 
post-war welfare state policies were under assault on two fronts. From the privatisation of publicly funded and publicly owned assets and services, and from the deregulation of global capital markets. Before 1985, the biggest mortgage providers were mutual building societies, trustee savings banks, the TSB, with links to local government, provided low-cost banking services for working-class populations. Utilities were all publicly owned. Land ownership by central and local government had grown since the 1920s with the development of public housing, the building of the post-World War II new towns, and with a wide range of amenities for the common good, including community and youth centres, swimming pools and parks. All this was to change. Demutualisation led to the widespread transfer of almost all the large building societies and TSB networks to the UK's big five banks. Utilities, local buses and train services were sold to private companies. The Conservative government's right to buy policy in 1980 led to the sale of council homes at generous discounts. And by 2019, there were one and a quarter million fewer affordable homes of all kinds than there had been in 1980, despite all the new building that had occurred since then. As banks closed branches, inner city and rural communities were increasingly denied access to even the most basic financial services, marking a growing trend of financial exclusion for people on low and moderate incomes. Recession in the early 1990s made things worse, ushering in a time of persistently high levels of unemployment in those very same inner city and rural areas. The crisis accelerated the decline of manufacturing employment in Northern England, with firms going into liquidation or relocating abroad in search of cheaper labour and more lenient regulation. Local governments lost resources, powers and autonomy. The central government restricted their ability to borrow and thus their capacity to build their own affordable housing or to assist private owners and landlords in improving the ageing stock of terraced homes built in the 19th century and which still formed the main source of housing in inner city areas. With the sale of public sector housing stock, a sharp fall across the UK in new house building and a tidal wave of deregulated mortgage finance flooding the market, house prices rose much faster than incomes, marking the start of the process of financialization of land and property markets. That process continues to this day, especially in London, Oxford, Cambridge and much of southern England. In many rural areas, the growth of second or holiday home ownership and the retirement to the country of older people with accumulated housing equity from the sale of valuable urban homes added to the upward drift in house prices. The first pioneering CLT, the Stonesfield Trust, was set up in rural Oxfordshire in the mid-1980s. Like many other villages, rising housing prices had made Oxfordshire unaffordable for local people on a low or moderate income but nobody was building new, affordably priced homes. The Trust's founder, Tony Crofts, lived in the village 
and donated a small site to the Trust, an organisation which he had helped set up. It was controlled by people living in the village and aimed to provide permanently affordable rental housing for people who needed to work and live locally. The development was completed at relatively low cost, using a creative mix of investment by Crofts himself, loans from the local council, two social banks, the Ecology Building Society and Triodos Bank, and interest-free loans and donations from the Quaker Housing Trust and ethical investors. In 1984, the equity of these first homes was used as leverage to build three more CLT homes and two affordable workspaces. This alignment of mutual interests among the community, a local landowner, the council and funders was to be the foundation for the many rural CLTs that followed. Crofts himself was a Quaker who had been inspired by the writings of Gerard Winstanley and the Diggers and by their ambition that land should be a common storehouse for all. Although he initiated his CLT project independently, he soon made connections with a group of activists working on new ways of addressing the impact of these wider structural changes. They were all searching for alternative institutions that could tackle social and economic exclusion, especially those that could encourage democratic and community ownership of housing, such as community land trusts. This group of activists had been greatly influenced by a 1989 book edited by Ward Morehouse called Building Sustainable Communities. It included chapters by Sean Turnbull from Australia and Bob Swan and George Bonello from the USA, highlighting the links between community development finance institutions, CDFIs, community land trusts and worker co-ops. In the late 1990s, several of these activists travelled to the USA from England and there they met Bob Swan, co-founder of the Institute of Community Economics, and John Davis, who had helped start the Burlington CLT, now named the Champlain Housing Trust. Their visit to the USA left them convinced that the development of CDFIs and CLTs as new sustainable institutions to combat financial and social exclusion would require the establishment of a nationally available support service and a treasury of retained knowledge that would make CLTs replicable and possible for any urban or rural community. In 1989, after creating a formal action group, they developed terms of reference for a CLT action research programme and helped to establish Community Finance Solutions, CFS, at the University of Salford. CFS took the lead on policy advocacy for the growth of new CDFIs and CLTs and were backed by other activists who continued to provide practical support for new CLT projects until the National CLT Network was formed in 2010. The Action Research Brief aimed to test how a CDFI and CLT strategy for rural regeneration could be aligned to win support from communities, local government and funders. The first project was funded by the Hasto Housing Association, a specialist rural affordable housing association, and the Housing Corporation, the government agency responsible for promoting and funding affordable housing in England. Three rural areas of England were selected for the action research. 
the project looked at the combined effects of the growth in second homes and a series of farming crises which had devastated rural economies across England throughout the 1990s. The most hard hit of these areas was the southwest of England, Cornwall in particular. Strand 2. Improving the quality of life in rural Cornwall through community land trusts. That Cornwall became the first and remains one of the most progressive and successful areas of CLTs was the result of an ideal alignment of special circumstances that would shape the future development of CLTs nationally. It was also due in part to the work of Dr Bob Patterson. He lived just over the Cornish border in Devon and by others at Community Finance Solutions. Between 1999 and 2006, Community Finance Solutions began to develop practical ways of securing community ownership of land as the best way of providing permanently affordable housing. After several years of planning, the Cornwall Community Land Trust began work in 2006, forming into a company in 2007. It aimed to advance CLTs by providing practical advice and support to village communities wishing to establish their own CLTs. Having an experienced housing development manager, Alan Fox, in the role of Cornwall CLT's project director was absolutely critical. Vital seed corn funding was sourced from local councils and the forward-thinking Tudor Trust. A critically important relationship was forged with the project host, Cornwall Rural Housing Association, whose chief executive at the time had previous experience in the cooperative business sector. This relationship saw back office support and selective project finance provided by the Housing Association, with the Cornwall CLT providing development management services to the Housing Association. This cross fertilisation of activity underpinned the financial viability of the Cornwall CLT. The success of this model of locally provided technical support was to lead eventually to the development of similar umbrella CLTs across the country at county, city and sub-regional levels. St Minva was a pioneering self-built CLT. The parish of St Minva includes a number of holiday villages on the North Cornwall coast, with some of the best surfing beaches in the UK. But in 2006, average house prices were higher than in London. This caused proactive local parish councillors to begin exploring ways to overcome the difficulty experienced by local people in finding affordable housing to rent or to buy. The St Minver CLT emerged when a parish councillor sowed the idea of forming a CLT, when a local farmer offered land at a low price, and when a local builder and a group of residents came together. The North Cornwall District Council provided a start-up grant and an interest-free loan to underpin the development of what turned out to be the first of three phases of development. The self-build mortgages for individual households enabled the purchase of a serviced self-build plot from the CLT and the repayment of the council's loan. The St Minver CLT was supported and advised by Cornwall CLT 
A local allocation or sales policy was agreed with the council and 12 self-build applicants were selected from local people in need. The St Minver CLT signed a Section 106 agreement with the local council, a legally binding planning obligation which controls future occupancy and affordability and must be adhered to by all successive owner-occupants of a CLT home. The Section 106 agreement is an additional protection for the principle of affordability in perpetuity. The same principle is embodied in the CLT's constitution and is also incorporated into the sale of homes to income-qualified buyers. The CLT completed its first phase of homes in Dingle's Way in December 2008, on time and on budget. They were sold on limited equity terms the total cost of the home represented one-third of the market value of the home on the day of completion. That was deemed to be affordable to local people paying no more than one-third of area median income to meet their housing costs. This transformed the lives of local families who, without the CLT, would never have found secure housing. As one of the first residents at Dingle's Way said, I've lived in a caravan for all of this year and was just really worried about what I was going to do and where I was going to live. Now, having my own home and building it myself with a garden in a place like this, it's just unreal. All future resales will be priced at one-third the market value of the home, with a new qualifying buyer selected by the CLT. A partnership between St Minver CLT and Cornwall Rural Housing Association has seen a second phase of eight more self-build limited equity homes and four other rented homes completed on adjoining land in 2011. The CLT is now planning a third development in another part of the parish. What was the key to success for the Cornwall CLT? Three critical factors enabled Cornwall to become a rural CLT hotspot. Credible and sustained community leadership at the village and local council level. Local councils offering short-term development finance through revolving loan funds. And lastly, an alignment of interests among the council, local landowners, the CLT and a local housing association, ensuring community support and leadership to identify appropriate sites, matched with access to locally available technical expertise. What was the key lesson from Cornwall that informed the future growth of CLTs nationwide? The individuals and organisations that had backed CLT development in Cornwall hoped to see the model spread throughout the UK. That would require, in their estimation, two building blocks. First, some sort of national demonstration programme was needed to refine the CLT concept, to influence public policy and to widen acceptance of the CLT model by communities in other rural areas. Second, equity was needed to support the initial experimentation and early replication of the CLT model, providing the risk capital that would enable new CLTs to take on repayable debt for their first projects and to establish a track record for effective performance. Both building blocks were put in place by 2008. 
the purpose and importance of the National CLT Demonstration Programme and the CLT Fund are described later in Period 2. Strand 3. New Institutions for Devolved Local Governance in National Government Regeneration and Growth Area Programmes. The third strand of the early CLT story is fundamentally different. In rural areas, it had been community leaders, activists and residents who had taken the initiative to find a solution to local problems which neither the state nor anyone else was able to solve. In the national policy arena, the initiative for finding new ways to involve communities in housing provision and urban regeneration, thereby winning a place for CLTs, fell to a group of activist professionals, housing and public administration lawyers and specialists in housing development and finance. Their professional work was motivated by a public interest commitment to ensuring that citizens and communities would have an effective say in the major decisions that affect their lives. These activist professionals were to play a major role in promoting and positioning CLTs to become a potential instrument of housing policy, particularly relating to methods of land assembly in government-designated growth areas, new forms of local governance to promote community well-being through effective stewardship programmes for community-owned or community-controlled land, and lastly, the regeneration of large urban public housing estates. Although results on the ground were limited at the time, the mere presence of CLTs in public policy thinking was nevertheless critical to the development of the concept more generally. Methods of land assembly in growth areas. The Labour Party, which led Britain's government from 1997 to 2010, backed a major expansion in housing supply, starting with its 2003 Sustainable Communities Plan. This was reinforced by major planning law reforms enacted in 2004. These measures aim to empower citizens in local development of all kinds, requiring every new development to have a statement of community involvement. Organisations like the Joseph Roundry Foundation believe that community ownership of land for new housing development could be a powerful way to engage communities in the future of their places while reducing opposition to new development. That was based on their own experience with community control of development and local governance at its new Earswick development outside York. In its 2002 centenary year report, Land for Housing, the foundation included a technical appendix explaining how CLTs could be used to secure a long-term community interest in land for new development. CLTs were also advocated by the Local Government Association, the LGA, in its 2004 publication New Development and New Opportunities. Although councils had very few powers, resources or political inclination to take advantage of these new opportunities, the LGA's endorsement helped raise the profile of CLTs and to popularise the concept. Here's a quote from a local government association pamphlet in 2004, which stated that a community land trust is a private, non-profit corporation 
created to acquire and hold land for the benefit of a community and to provide secure, affordable access to land and housing for community residents. In particular, community land trusts attempt to meet the needs of residents least served by the prevailing market. New forms of local governance to promote community well-being through the stewardship of community-owned or community-controlled assets. Alongside its planning reforms, the Labour government wanted to modernise local governance. The New Deal for Communities programme, NDC, developed by the Labour government of the time, was a refinement of earlier urban regeneration programmes that had focused just on housing. It invested about £5 million annually in each of 20 deprived neighbourhoods, each containing up to 15,000 people, over a period of 10 years. In 1998, councils and communities bid jointly to government for funding. Once selected, communities were put in charge of these resources. However, the central government failed to make councils cooperate with the NDC communities, thus seriously weakening the impact of this programme. Even so, a few successful NDC bodies continued after public funded ended in 2009. The NDC programme formed part of a more systemic approach to local government, integrating the use of assets, finance, town planning and public service delivery. This approach was embedded in the Local Government Act of 2000, in which councils were given express powers to do anything they wished to promote the social, economic and environmental well-being of their communities, a purpose that would later be reflected in the statutory definition of CLTs. The regeneration of large urban public housing estates. From the late 1980s through to the early 2000s, both Conservative and Labour governments funded capital programmes that enable councils to improve ageing or structurally defective public housing estates. Funding conditions often required councils to include communities in both decision-making about the projects and the longer-term governance of estates. Until the financial crash in 2007, the government's Community Housing Task Force was investigating the potential for community-controlled CLTs to own the freehold of their estates and leasing land to housing associations who would upgrade or redevelop this social housing. Strand 4. A statutory definition for community land trusts in England and Wales and why there's a C in CLT. The activist professionals who were operating in this political environment had been inspired by the success of the Dudley Street Neighbourhood Initiative in Boston. Dudley Street's governance and holistic regeneration achievements were regarded as potential exemplars for both councils and communities that were being affected by plans for regeneration and new housing development. The kind of devolved autonomy from the state which Dudley Street represented was promoted by activist professionals in England as a model of double devolution. This policy, adopted by the Labour government in the early 2000s, 
was intended to achieve a progressive devolution of powers from central to local government and then from local government to communities. The Minister of Local Government considered various ideas for implementing devolution through his local government sounding board, of which the reader was a member. The Local Government Association, however, had no interest in the idea of transferring any powers to communities, despite its earlier endorsement of CLTs in the context of new development. What the activists learned from this experience and from the frustration of various CLT initiatives not quite coming off, was that CLT development could not be sustained in the face of shifting market or political conditions unless the community was the driving force behind the process. Even well-intentioned politicians, public servants and professionals were no substitute for community leadership, advocacy and organising in making CLTs happen. Nevertheless, the activists appreciated the necessity for CLTs to obtain sufficient legal recognition that would justify a corporate existence that was independent of any particular government policy or programme and independent of any transitory political party alignment. In Cornwall, where CLTs were starting their first homes in 2007, it was especially apparent that having a national legal definition for CLTs would open up more sources of finance. Lenders were beginning to be much more cautious as the financial crash unfolded. They needed a standardised definition of the CLT to understand what kind of organisation they were being asked to support in the financing of new residential development. This so-called Cornish justification for enacting a CLT definition was a straightforward ask of Members of Parliament. So an amendment was added to the Housing and Regeneration Bill that was going through Parliament in 2007, specifying how a community land trust was to be defined in England and Wales. It was enacted into law in 2008, and this is the text of the definition as set out in Section 79 of the Housing and Regeneration Act 2008. A CLT is a corporate body which satisfies the two conditions below. Condition 1. It is established for the express purpose of furthering the social, economic and environmental interests of a local community by acquiring and managing land and other assets in order to provide a benefit to the local community and to ensure that the assets are not sold or developed except in a manner which the Trust's members thinks benefits the local community. Condition 2. It is established under arrangements which are expressly designed to ensure that any profits from its activities will be used to benefit the local community, otherwise than by being paid directly to the members, and individuals who live or work in the specified area have the opportunity to become members of the Trust, whether or not others can also become members, and the members of a Trust control it. The wording of this definition 
was not just intended to reassure lending institutions, however. It was even more relevant for communities needing a legal form through which they could become more powerful in decision-making about the future of their areas. By linking a CLT's purpose to the ownership of land for promoting the interests of residents, the definition tried to remedy the democratic deficit that had been left by the government's abandonment of double devolution. It also addressed the absence of any obligation on landowners to serve the common good in English property rights and law. Embodied in this CLT definition were three essential and quietly subversive concepts that would empower communities in the planning, development and regeneration of their local areas. These three concepts were 1. A CLT could only exist to protect and promote the economic, social and environmental interests of the existing community, directly copying the well-being powers given to councils in the Local Government Act 2000, and the legal purposes attributed to the planning reforms in the Planning and Compulsory Purchase Act of 2004. Second, land should be owned and used for the purposes of securing the common good. And three, participatory democratic control and democratic influence should be the hallmarks of local development. For most community activists, their main motivation for setting up a CLT was to restrict the price of land, curbing an out-of-control land market that was working against the well-being of their communities. This represented an approach to the pricing and allocation of land that elected and appointed public officials were, and still are, reluctant to adopt. The definition's overriding purpose was, therefore, to give communities status and democratic legitimacy to act in their own interests, pursuing a strategy that did not have to be decided by either the central or local government. Catherine Harrington, Section 2, Growth and Consolidation, 2008-2018. If the previous two decades sowed the seeds for a CLT movement in England, the third decade saw its rapid germination. As CLTs grew from 20 at the start of 2008 to over 300 today. Crucially, this occurred during a period of further political and economic upheaval. In 2010, after the first general election following the 2007 financial crash, the new coalition government embarked on a radical reshaping of housing policy. This was aimed at bolstering private house building and renting, whilst squeezing out affordable housing provision. Despite aspirations to tackle the housing crisis, the government was spending 44% less public money on affordable homes by 2013, with knock-on secondary effects that limited CLT growth in some ways and stimulated it in others. Council budgets, 
hit hard by austerity policies, severely limited the ability of councils to invest in housing and regeneration. In this new world of market-driven housing production and state retrenchment, civil society organisations like CLTs were expected to flourish as part of the coalition government's new idea, the big society. Despite being personally championed by the Prime Minister, David Cameron, the big society soon lost political traction. A few of his ideas survived into the Localism Act 2011, however, which introduced new community rights for civil society organisations. Neighbourhood planning, the right to draw up a hyper-local plan, has been the most significant and widely used of these. The qualifying criteria for community organisations using this right were closely modelled on the CLT statutory definition, enacted three years earlier. Yet the development of CLTs continued to be held back by familiar challenges. Access to land, funding and finance, local planning processes, deficits in technical knowledge and skills, and limited public acceptance of affordable housing in certain areas. With so many barriers standing in the way of CLTs, the eventual emergence of today's CLT movement is remarkable. How did this happen? What made it possible? What were the pivotal moments in its development? We shall answer these questions by describing this stage of growth of the CLT movement through four parallel strands of activity. One, building a support infrastructure. Two, making the voice of CLTs heard in government. Three, speaking in a united voice to government, advocating for all forms of community-led housing. And four, improving the funding and finance system. Building a support infrastructure. Despite public enthusiasm, for CLTs, very few groups had actually built any homes before 2008. This was due, in part, to there being no support infrastructure to capitalise on this interest. A persuasive argument that such an infrastructure was needed was put forward by activists, academics and professionals who had been making the case for CLTs. They convinced the Carnegie UK Trust, the Housing Corporation and the Higher Education Funding Council for England to support an initial two-year national CLT demonstration programme starting in 2008. Led by Community Finance Solutions, the goals of this programme were to promote the creation of CLTs in both rural and urban settings and to provide advice and support to local groups so they could get their projects off the ground. On a parallel track, the same activists successfully assembled the capital for a CLT fund from a number of major charitable foundations, 
This fund provided small seed corn grants to cover the startup stages of CLTs and offered pre-development and development loans for CLT projects. By the end of the demonstration programme, three CLTs were in the process of building 30 homes and another 139 homes were in the pipeline. New resources and technical advice also emerged, but enabling support remained limited, political support was marginal, and the CLT movement still lacked a united voice. Following the demonstration programme's final recommendations, a community empowerment grant was secured from the central government in 2010, providing initial funding for two essential elements of a support infrastructure for CLTs, a national membership body and a replicable sub-regional enabling body called an umbrella CLT, using Wessex community assets as the pilot. The national CLT network was started in 2010 with a blank slate in terms of its future form and direction. The first director, who was the organisation's sole paid employee at the time, was assigned a dizzying array of initial tasks. Establish governance and membership arrangements, provide support and resources for emerging groups, communicate with communities and the national and local press, and lobby central government to address the barriers to CLT development. It was also vital to ensure that the first CLT members took ownership of the national mission and participated in the organisation's governance. The network would have credibility only if it was a genuinely representative body. The choice of an appropriate host for the network was important. After considering a number of civil society organisations with housing and community interests, the National Housing Federation, the representative body for housing associations in England, was selected. The Federation offered the greatest potential to increase the coverage and influence of the network's activity. Despite representing a somewhat different set of housing interests from those of the network. The interests of the Federation and the network did indeed diverge between 2010 and 2014, as many housing associations became larger, more corporate and less connected to the communities they served. Also, with the growing profile and standing of the network, there was sufficient impetus to become legally and operationally independent, which it did in June 2014. The network quickly learnt that, despite the growing number of CLTs forming since 2010, the scale and pace of development would be limited if CLTs continued to rely solely on volunteers. These individuals were being asked to learn vast amounts of technical information about housing finance, company law and development planning. In essence, 
becoming quasi-housing professionals. While supported by a number of sympathetic and committed advisors willing to travel the country. Seedcorn funding from the CLT fund, which paid for early advisory support, only took these fledgling CLTs a short way on their journey. Many could only move slowly toward reaching their goal of building homes. Stronger support systems were acquired. One such system was emerging in the form of umbrella CLTs, including those in Cornwall, Cumbria, Lincolnshire, the east of England, and Somerset, Devon and Dorset, otherwise known as Wessex. In theory, umbrella CLTs could offer end-to-end support for both organisational and project development. Each covered an entire county or several counties, supporting individual CLTs in that area. From the initial start-up stage of a CLT being a bright idea, through incorporation, planning and construction, to the point where people moved into new CLT homes. Some umbrella CLTs, like Wessex, were based on strong partnerships with carefully chosen housing associations having shared aims and values. This enabled communities to focus on being effective participants in shaping projects, with the housing association taking on the technical and administrative burden, bringing its expertise in development and financing. The network actively sought funding from charitable foundations and government to support the establishment of new umbrellas, hoping to achieve full geographic coverage of England. As these regional and sub-regional support systems grew, the network saw that its role needed to change. It should only do what could not be adequately performed at the local, sub-regional or regional level. This meant focusing on national advocacy campaigns, leadership and promotion of best practices. Making the voice of CLTs heard in government, experiments and successes in advocacy. Despite having secured a statutory definition for CLTs in 2008, political support for CLTs was still tentative it became a priority of the network to strengthen the influence of CLTs with central government and to secure capital grant funding for the development of CLT projects. The value of CLTs could only be demonstrated when politicians could see a sufficient number of completed CLT homes. But land acquisition and housing development required some form of capitalisation by government. In England, social housing was supported through the central government's Affordable Homes Programme for housing associations. In response to lobbying, 25 million of that programme was set aside for CLTs up to 2015. This supported a number of projects, particularly in areas like Wessex, where the housing association partnership model and umbrella CLT support 
meant that a good number of rural schemes could progress relatively quickly. Using public money in this way did not meet with universal support, however. Some academics and community activists saw CLTs as a critique of past housing policy failures and current forms of publicly supported housing. They argued that CLTs should draw on entirely different sources of finance and be independent of central government and its ideas about tenure and affordability. The network had to navigate a fine line between demonstrating that CLTs were a practicable, preferable choice, therefore creating valuable social and economic outcomes, while simultaneously holding on to the principle that CLTs must only develop what is locally appropriate and desired, not what is decided at a government official's desk in central London. The 2015 general election provided a key opportunity for the network to mobilise its lobbying experience to influence the major parties and any new government's policies. The network's pre- and post-election manifestos made ambitious demands, including capital grants and funding for support and advice, and for preferential treatment of CLT projects in planning, taxation and leasehold law. The network moved beyond its traditional lobbying and influencing at the national level, which had focused on government ministers, MPs, political advisers and think tanks. It focused simultaneously on the grassroots, mobilising individual CLTs to lobby their MPs, particularly in electorally significant areas, knowing that the constituency link would prove critical in gaining MPs' support thereby influencing national policy-making. New urban CLTs were also showing how targeted lobbying and community organising could secure political commitments at local and regional level. Community organisers at Citizens UK and at London CLT extracted commitments to support CLTs from public officials. This culminated in support from London's mayors first Ken Livingston, and then Boris Johnson, for the first significant urban CLT project in the UK, located at the St Clement's Hospital site in London's East End. Over 80 MPs were targeted in the run-up to the general election, many of whom pledged their support for the network's pre-election manifesto. Once the new government was elected, the network knowing that there could not be a political ask without a matching political offer, set out a convincing case to government officials that CLTs could help them to achieve their own housing aspirations by gaining popular support for new house building, which was often fiercely resisted by established communities directly affected by development, helping diversify the house building industry after the financial crash, which had accelerated the demise of small and medium-sized builders and developers. Innovating in an industry highly resistant to change. And addressing affordability concerns for both middle-income and low-income households in electorally sensitive areas. Despite the cross-party appeal of CLTs, 
One of the new government's first actions was to introduce a housing and planning bill into Parliament that, among other measures, imposed a compulsory rent reduction regime for social housing providers that would have left several CLTs bankrupt within two to three years. The government also proposed extending the existing right to buy to the tenants of housing associations. This would have provided tenants with a large discount to purchase their homes, including some CLT homes, directly undermining the ability of CLTs to keep their homes genuinely affordable in perpetuity. The potential damage to the CLT brand, and thus the risk to the future of the CLT movement as a whole, was significant. A twin-track national-local lobbying strategy proved critical enabling the network to move quickly to protect CLTs from the bill's most damaging features. The lobbying presence in Whitehall, combined with pressure from CLTs on the ground, was highly effective in winning CLT exemptions to both rent reduction and right to buy proposals. Within Whitehall, the network had gained a reputation for being an effective lobbying organisation with ministers repeatedly approached by MPs on behalf of CLTs within their constituencies. A united voice promoting all forms of community-led housing. From the mid-2000s, attempts had been made to collaborate among the main national representative bodies of housing cooperatives, CLTs, co-housing communities and development trusts, all forms of community-led housing. The aim of collaboration was to project a more powerful sector voice in national debates. Working together proved challenging for everyone. Each body started out believing they had more to gain by lobbying separately on behalf of their own memberships. They were torn between protecting their identity and promoting policies specific to their model versus supporting a wider set of shared activities and objectives. CLTs in particular had a unique focus on lasting affordability, which was not universally shared among the other commuter-led housing sector bodies. Nevertheless, the CLT network decided to take a more inclusive stance vis-a-vis other national bodies and to play a significant leadership role within this sector. Because the network's director and trustees judged that CLTs would benefit from being part of a larger landscape of community-led housing. In 2015, World Habitat, formerly the Building and Social Housing Foundation, helpfully stepped in at this juncture. World Habitat, with its global experience of community-led housing, could act as an independent broker to forge alliances across the sector. This was fortunate timing. The first alliance between national bodies was forged between the National CLT Network and the UK co-housing network. The growing stature of the former and a gradual alignment of aims and values between the two networks resulted in them sharing staff and back office functions and lobbying government together. The two networks then led the efforts to bring on board the other community-led housing sector bodies to endorse a broader vision and to present a united front to central government. The four main national bodies now work collaboratively in a formal alliance called Community-Led Homes. 
Improving the System of Funding and Finance. Most early CLTs draw on a diverse range of funding and finance to make their projects viable, as the Stonesfield CLT had done. The CLT fund had been designed to provide CLTs with both pre-development and development loans structured in innovative ways. Some were provided at risk, repayable only if and when planning permission was granted. Other loans were available with lower levels of security, taking a subordinate position on the property to enable a larger lender to take the first position. By the end of 2018, the CLT fund had supported over 44 CLTs and had helped to finance over 100 newly built affordable homes with another 400 plus in development. While it's helpful, these funds were still no panacea, especially for groups trying to cover pre-development costs on larger projects. Other funds became available, such as the reallocation of 14 million unspent government revenue funding. However, the government's conditions were highly risk-averse, requiring groups to have bought or secured a firm interest in their site before the government's money would be released. Other forms of niche funding were developed, especially as interest grew in urban CLTs. A generous grant from the Oak Foundation enabled the network to set up a dedicated urban CLT project, providing small grants and peer-to-peer learning for 20 pioneering urban CLTs over a period of three years. Some were in areas with very high land values. Others were in areas with lower land values and a large number of empty homes. The programme also supported the first Welsh CLT in Rill. Recent evaluations of the Urban CLT project highlight the critical role of Seacorn funding in leveraging wider investment for urban schemes and showed how urban CLTs have the potential to amass large memberships which strengthen their political leverage at a local level. The network was also intent on trying to create a more coherent ecosystem of funding and finance with a wider range of loans on sensible and appropriate terms for community groups. Social investors and ethical lenders, such as the Charity Bank, Trilos Bank and the Ecology Building Society, stepped forward to offer new financial products. Much of this was highly bespoke, however, and still left significant gaps. The Community Housing Fund. For the general election in May 2015, The network's manifesto had asked for renewed capital funding for CLTs, similar to the 25 million affordable housing programme that had just ended in March 2015. When the government's first budget was unveiled in March 2016, the network, and indeed the whole community-led housing sector, were delighted to hear the Chancellor announce a 60 million community housing fund for community housing projects in rural and coastal areas, notably where there was a high proportion of high-priced second homes. Surprisingly, civil servants then confirmed that the fund was, in fact, £60 for each of the next five years, later reduced to four years, so £240 overall. 
considerably more than anything the community-led housing sector had seen previously. Creation of the Community Housing Fund was a clear vindication of the network's leadership and lobbying efforts. It provided a unique opportunity to build on the work of the preceding years, creating a stronger infrastructure and coherent system of funding and finance for community-led housing groups. The CLT and co-housing networks took the lead in articulating a vision and practical design for the Community Housing Fund and led efforts to bring on board the other community-led housing sector bodies. The government adopted this vision. Until March 2020, the Community Housing Fund was available to community-led housing groups across England and consisted of revenue grants to set up new groups and to get them development ready, capital grants for infrastructure and the construction of affordable homes of any tenure, and grants to create the national support infrastructure building on the concept of umbrella CLTs to create a national network of local enabling hubs. It is still available to groups in London. General Lessons for Building and Sustaining a National CLT Movement, 2008 to 2018. A decade of rapid CLT growth in England and Wales offers several key lessons for movement building. Lesson one. Lobbying efforts proved highly effective, a result of the division of tasks between the network and communities on the ground. Individually, CLTs harnessed the power of telling their local stories to persuade those with influence and decision-making power, especially in electorally sensitive areas. The network provided the mobilisation, information for CLTs on the key asks of decision-makers, and the technical and policy-centred arguments in favour of CLTs. Most critically, it exerted direct influence on ministers and significant MPs. Lesson two. The success of the national lobbying activity flowed from a pragmatic approach, framing CLTs within the wider housing crisis and aligning CLTs with dominant ideological and political priorities. Government ministers and officials were shown how CLTs and other community housing initiatives could help them to achieve their national housing objectives. Lesson three. Having sold the political benefits of CLTs, lobbying was directed towards influencing financial priorities, expanding access to land and finance, and enacting legal and legislative rules affecting the viability of CLT models of development. Lesson four. The network and local CLTs developed a clear picture of the financial requirements of CLTs over the lifetime of their projects, including revenue for core activities, capital for land acquisition and project development, and ongoing revenue to allow CLTs to play a long-term stewardship role. Lesson five. CLTs need more than money. Networks of skilled professionals are required to reduce the burden on volunteers. The argument for enabling hubs, which are supporting CLTs across the country, appears to have prevailed. Only time will tell, however, if that infrastructure is sustainable.
Section 3. Potential Futures for CLTs. Read by Tom Archer. Reinventing left-behind rural towns in the context of neighbourhood or other community-led plans to tackle housing, employment, heritage and landscape challenges in towns that get little, if any, support from public policy initiatives or public resources. Establishing enabling hubs and civic partnerships with city authorities, aspiring to greater devolution from the central government. Reinventing left-behind rural towns. Cranbrook and Sissinghurst Parish lies in the glorious rolling farmland of the High Weald in Kent, a protected area of outstanding natural beauty and one of the most complete medieval landscapes in Europe. With 130 historic farmsteads, the parish is brimming with archaeology. Architecture and place names tell of a legacy of invasion and immigration from mainland Europe. Cranbrook Town prides itself on its independent retail centre and has more ancient buildings than many larger historic cathedral cities, many dating to the time of medieval cloth industry when its economy first peaked. Cranbrook also has the tallest windmill in England, a lofty medieval church, a quirky provincial museum, a theatre and a year-round arts programme. Even so, the town is not thriving. Outward prosperity conceals internal economic and social weaknesses. Cranbrook has lost both its rail link and its market. It does not benefit from any special programmes of government financial support. Like many other parts of the UK that voted to leave the European Union in 2016, the citizens of Cranbrook feel left behind. Cranbrook's modern-day economy rests on an affluent and mobile middle class, attracted by a concentration of high-performing state and private schools. The parish's proximity to London, the prevalence of second home ownership, the wholesale financialisation of the UK's housing markets and the lack of new housing means the affordability gap has been stretched to breaking point. At 19 to 1, the ratio of average house prices to average household income makes the parish one of the least affordable in the country. Young people who have grown up in the parish cannot afford to stay. The majority of those working in the town or on the land are priced out and forced to commute long distances from cheaper areas. Empowering communities to reimagine their place. The 2011 Localism Act granted new powers to communities in cities and rural villages to shape their own futures and to draw up formal neighbourhood development plans or NDPs. The momentum of the CLT movement and the national lobbying prompted one government minister to say there should be a CLT in every neighbourhood plan. With over a thousand plans, this represented a real opportunity for growth. The implicit political message of make your own plan, then do your own development was just what the people of Cranbrook had in mind. In 2015, Residents of Cranbrook recognised that the town needed a regeneration strategy 
a body to curate it, and investment funding to make it happen. In 2017, the Council launched an NDP. A dedicated team of community volunteers also came together to initiate a CLT, so that one could support the other. The proposal to set up the Crane Valley Land Trust was backed by 500 signatures of support. Since its formation, the Land Trust has worked hand-in-hand with the NDP Steering Committee and also engaged local landowners, house builders and potential joint venture development partners looking to provide the genuinely and permanently affordable housing that Cranbrook needs. A local apple grower has recently donated one acre or 0.6 hectares, of land on which can be built 22 prototype passive house homes for the community, whilst also enabling his farm manager to live on site. The homes will be affordable not only to rent or buy, but also to operate. The challenge for Cranbrook, as with many other left-behind communities, is to take back control of its destiny. This is what it is doing through its NDP and the Crane Valley Land Trust, promoting sustainable housing development in policy and practical actions. The Land Trust is embodying the essential qualities and character of the town and surrounding historic rural landscape in its approach to development and as an exemplar for others to follow. Establishing Enabling Hubs and City CLT Partnerships The Community Housing Fund created an opportunity to build on the achievements of the first generation umbrella CLTs and to realise the National CLT Network's vision, that is, to develop sub-regional enabling hubs as support bodies for all forms of community-led housing that cover most of England with a mix of urban and rural hubs. They are connected with one another in order to pool resources and to share technical expertise. CLT East operates across the extended geography of Eastern England and is the first to have made the crossover from rural to urban political settings. One of its first successes was the project developed by the Streatham and Wilberton CLT based on the CLT's partnership with the Parish Council and the East Cambridgeshire District Council. This partnership has resulted in 70 new homes, including 25 CLT homes, in a village that had previously resisted any new housing. As a result of the project, the Council developed a planning policy for enabling community-led development and formed Palace Green Homes, a new council-owned housing development company with part of its remit to serve as a development partner for CLTs. A further effect of this policy innovation has been the strong support now being given to CLTs from the Mayor of the recently established Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Combined Authority, which covers an area containing those two cities as well as a range of smaller, left-behind towns, all of which may grow rapidly in the years ahead. What is needed? The particular strength of an enabling hub 
is its understanding of the pipeline of groups and projects and their supply chains in a particular area. This is helpful to councils when they are attempting to get an accurate picture of the level and type of local demand and how the council might help to meet it. Because enabling hubs need to operate over a wide area and with enough volume of business to pay their way, there is an opportunity to collaborate when groups in different geographies are going through similar development processes. Collaboration is particularly valuable in urban areas where multiple groups can share in the development of a single large site or co can cooperate in getting better value from local builders or off-site manufacturers. Partnerships are key to an enabling hub's success. Partners may host the hub's office functions, share staff members and bring financial or technical support. Given that housing development can take many years, hubs need to diversify income streams outside of project-related fees. Research may offer extra income and help position a hub as a thought leader in a particular area. The Oxford Hub, for example, has conducted research on the Oxford housing market and Wessex Community Assets has conducted research on the motivations and aspirations of CLT volunteers in Somerset, Devon and Dorset. There are also opportunities to charge for developing and delivering training courses for prospective home buyers, employees of local authorities and housing associations and professionals in design, finance and law who may have little experience working with community groups. A new breed of civic partnerships, CLTs and city regions. Three innovative CLTs have led the growth of city region enabling hubs. Leeds Community Homes is a CLT created from the initiative of experienced local community-led housing organisations that had been active in the city for several decades. The CLT engages in the direct delivery of housing, funded in part through community share offers, and supports the development of other community-led housing organisations across the city region. Bristol CLT has been a national leader in delivering innovative community-led housing projects for almost two decades. The Bristol City Council is now an integral partner of the hub and is offering sites to encourage the development of CLT homes and other forms of community-led housing. Oxfordshire CLT, established in 2004, had struggled to build a pipeline of projects due to the competition for sites in the highest value area in the UK and the lack of local government support. However, the creation of the Community Housing Fund in 2016 prompted a surge of new rural and urban projects and renewed interest from the five Oxfordshire councils. In 2017, 
the Oxfordshire CLT forged an enabling hub partnership with a local philanthropic foundation and the community development charity. The CLT now focuses on holding land and partnering with smaller CLTs and other developers rather than doing housing development on its own. The political significance of enabling hubs and the wider community-led housing approach. There is no doubt that CLTs have benefited from being part of a bigger community-led housing landscape. CLTs have recognised this and have taken the lead nationally and locally in building community-led housing sectoral alliances, both in their own self-interest and for the survival and growth of community-led housing in general. A handful of urban councils, moreover, have used CLTs as a response to the challenges of reduced funding from central government to maintain a supply of genuinely and permanently affordable housing. Alongside the call by CLTs for a new politics of shared control between politicians and citizens, there is now a significant potential for greater citizen involvement and community ownership of assets in urban regeneration as a counterweight to the acceptance of regeneration as driven solely by the financial motivations of real estate developers, investors and councils. What are CLTs really about? There are now over 300 CLTs in England 935 CLT homes have been built. Recent research suggests there are more than 5,000 new CLT homes in the pipeline. Nationwide, the membership of CLTs has grown to over 17,000 people. In May 2019, central government called for new information on the number of additional community-led homes that might start before 2024 to provide evidence of demand that could be met if the Community Housing Fund were extended beyond March 2020. Over 16,000 further community-led homes are now in prospect. Most of these are CLT homes. The recognised impact and widespread awareness of CLTs, once distant ambitions, are increasingly visible in national and local policymaking. Very few people now look puzzled when CLTs are mentioned. Familiar barriers remain, including lack of access to land, finance and technical support. But persistent and united action by varied community-led housing actors is making steady progress in reducing these constraints on future development. In June 2019, central government reacted positively to sustain campaigns by both the CLT and co-housing networks to secure exemptions from potentially damaging leasehold reforms. For instance, new CLTs would have been prevented from using ground leases to protect the affordability of their homes, but they will now be totally exempt from any legislative changes. The interest in CLTs as instruments for the regeneration of public housing estates, which had been proposed but abandoned in the early 2000s, is being revived. 
after a decade in which estate residents were excluded from the decision-making by their council landlords and displaced through gentrification caused by council and development partnerships, the political, social and economic damage has been recognised. Councils previously hostile to community action are now working with residents on co-production for estate regeneration, with some of the new homes likely to be owned by a CLT. The UK's main political parties are now openly endorsing CLTs. Labour's 2019 report, Land for the Many, argues that community land trusts should be given a greater role in alleviating the country's housing crisis. A Conservative think tank has recently proposed that the estate affected by the terrible fire at Grenfell Tower should be transferred into CLT ownership. So, what are CLTs really about? At that Royal Society Symposium, in 1998, mentioned at the start of this chapter, housing was described as like living itself, like life itself, messy. At the second International Festival of Social Housing in Lyon, France, hosted 21 years later by Housing Europe, the mood was angrier and more focused on the misuse of urban land and housing as a global speculative commodity. The potentially dire consequences for both rural and urban populations, for those at the margins and for the now threatened middle classes, are well expressed in the catchphrase from this 2019 event. What oil was to the industrial age, urban land is to global financial capitalism. Given the conspicuous failure of government policy, and the private market to create well-ordered and fair land and housing markets that respond to needs and demand, an active citizenship is needed to refocus political attention on some fundamentals. What all citizens need, what all citizens can afford, and what all citizens should be able to afford. Today is a time when new institutions of local democratic control are urgently needed to bring people together around issues that matter to everyone, especially the security of their homes and the cost of shelter. The communities that have done the hard work of setting up new institutions like CLTs have done so with a passion because they represent important political ideas about the way they want to live. These ideas belong to neither the right nor the left. They put communities in a healthier situation than before, with better quality and genuinely affordable homes and a real sense of identity and autonomy. In John Emmaus Davis's wise words, CLTs are not only problem-solving, they are problem-defining. CLTs embody an approach in which citizens can take the time to explore and to understand the complexity of their villages, towns, cities and communities and what makes them work. CLTs do not avoid the issues that everyone else seems determined to ignore when using a meaningless political term like affordable housing, namely the cost of land and the stewardship of public and private land to serve the common good. 
The statutory language defining CLTs in England and Wales was drafted with that participatory, problem-defining, problem-solving approach to community development in mind. Implicit in that definition is a recognition of power. Who has it and what can be done with it? The task of citizens seeking their own housing solutions is not to become part of the mainstream, but to reshape the mainstream. The trick in the design of the Community Housing Fund was to create a national policy based on local support frameworks that enabled different things to happen in different places. CLTs can only realistically mobilise as a credible force to counter the global financialization of land and housing if they can develop viable and credible alternatives of many different kinds that are adapted to and appropriate to their communities and their places. Global change happens through local intelligence, local innovation and local action. So messy is both good and necessary. That's the end of chapter eight. We have a short postscript. Our thanks go to five other people who contributed to this chapter. Pat Connerty, Kate Braithwaite, Kirsty Tate, Charlie Fisher and Tim Kemp, all of whom have played or are still playing significant roles in the English CLT story. They have each provided a distinctive and valid perspective of key events. We hope that they, and you the listeners, will excuse any minor discrepancies in joining up all the threads of that story in the spirit of creative and productive messiness. This has been an audio presentation of a published chapter from the book entitled On Common Ground. To order the entire volume of 26 essays, authored by scholars and practitioners from a dozen different countries, or to learn more about the International Community Land Trust movement, please visit the website of the Center for CLT Innovation. We can be found at www.cltweb.com. Dot org. Thank you for listening.